The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. I'm Faker Rothers and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. The semi-finals are set and the reigning champions are out. England will play Sweden and Germany face France for a coveted place in next week's Wembley final. Sweden and France did their absolute best not to get through or was there just a force field around the goals in Lee and Rotherham? Manuela Zinsberger had a night to forget as Austria were the architects of their own downfall but at least Clara Ball could see the funny side of her miss. The streets of the north, though, have fallen silent as the Orangi got their marching orders. We'll go through the remaining quarterfinals, take your questions, look ahead to the semis. And that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa, a proud sponsor of UEFA Women's Euro 2022. In 2020, Visa announced the launch of the second half, a career development programme to support female footballers as they consider their careers beyond the football pitch. Through the second half, Visa helps female footballers recognise that their skills are transferable, showing how they will be able to apply these skills outside of sport through training, in areas such as financial literacy, personal branding and leadership. By investing in the women's game and programmes like the second half, Visa hopes to encourage more young girls to believe that a career in football is possible. And it's in this world of doors opening for more people, or we might see a new player of the match, or a totally unexpected entrepreneur among us. Visa recognises that we'll only see the best of all of us when everyone participates. Find out more at theguardian.com slash all hyphen win. Oh, what a panel we have today. Susie Rack, are you free from isolation? Double COVID negative tests. Oh, yes. Wonderful. Just in time to get to the Lensbury later. Excellent. So the shackles are off. Susie is about watch out. Uh, Karen Carney, did you survive watching that England game? I'm not sure if the rest of us did. I think just like the team said, I wasn't really, I never felt we were going home. So um, I think the story has still got a little bit more to tell. So um, yeah, I was pretty confident. Nice. I I wish I felt the same. I felt sick for the majority of that uh, second half. Tim Stillman, can you believe we're into our last week already? No, not at all. And here staring at two free days, two whole days without games. I really don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I might like see my family and stuff. Oh, wow. That would be novel. Enjoy that. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's start in Rotherham last night, shall we? France gave Netherlands a 1-0 thrashing, which sounds really strange, but that's pretty much what it was. It ended France's quarterfinal curse and they reached the semifinals of the European Championship for the first time ever. Yves Perisse with the penalty in extra time after Dominique Janssen brought down Diani. Susie, we can't really talk about this match without talking about Daphne von Domselaar. What a Euros that she's had. Even got her glove to the penalty, but not meant to be. Absolutely incredible. Um, and I think 20 have gave her a new contract just before the tournament and they're going to be literally sort of rubbing their hands with glee at the smart business there. I, I think this, all the court finals, to be honest, were, were stories of goalkeeping, weren't they? Like one way or the other. And yeah, she was 
obviously a huge highlight I thought uh, Everard as well for Belgium particularly good and you know very very sorry for them to be on the <laughs> the losing teams yeah it's a shame isn't it some somebody always has to has to go home but when you've seen a player who's had such a fantastic tournament it's uh, it's even harsher tim vivian Miedemar straight back into the starting lineup for the dutch after covid she said that her whole tournament was just shit. I mean, she always just spells it out as it is, doesn't it, Viv? But it seems a little bit harsh on herself. But at the same time, it's been a tough couple of weeks for her. Yeah, it really has. And yeah, having spoken to Viv many, many times, she says what she means and she means what she says. I mean, it has been largely for reasons beyond her control. She had that brilliant game against Sweden on the opening day for Netherlands and one player of the match and probably turned the the game around, not quite single-handedly, but close to it. And then all of a sudden struck down with COVID. And I think the thing that's quite striking about this is nearly all the other players in the tournament that have had COVID missed one game, but she missed two. And there was kind of, there were some question marks about how fit she would be going into this. So it seemed to really impact her. And look, Viv has played in many tournaments before and lit them up and she'll play in many tournaments after this. But I don't think this one will live very long in her memory at all, unfortunately. You could tell how frustrated she was, couldn't you? Her body language wasn't wasn't great throughout. But I don't know how many people, I mean, Susie may attest to this, having just had it, can play 120 minutes of football having had COVID. Oh, I feel great. I mean, like... I, I I could easily do it. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, um, yeah, like, I mean, particularly uh, the first 24 hours, which is, you know, sort of a similar time to when she had it. I was a fever in the 40 degree heat. It was absolutely awful. And I just, yeah, the idea of coming straight back into a, a, a side and playing a full 90 is baffling. It's a shame, but, you know, with Mark Parsons not having been in the job that long, I sort of, you know, very much feel that this wasn't necessarily going to be a tournament that the Dutch really established themselves at under him. Like he's not had a huge amount of time to sort of stamp his mark on the team. I think we'll see a very, very different side come the World Cup. And I think, yeah, I think it will be a blip on their like quite impressive record in recent years. Mm. Karen, the French have had so many blips on their copybook for such a long time but they finally broke through this ceiling that they've had about reaching a major semi-finals how hard can it be if you're a team that kind of have that history of choking around this stage of the knockouts it's tough especially you know when it went to extra time in the latter part of the game we thinking and they absolutely dominated they in terms of opportunities and you know, entries into the final third, they had so many compared to, to the Netherlands and, and just didn't take them, just weren't clinical. And it comes to one of those points when you have a mental block, you're thinking, oh, we've missed these chances. We're not taking them. We're not being clinical. It's They're still in the game. They're still the current holders. And you, you probably do have that doubt. But then once the goal went in, I thought then they, they relaxed and they're in control and you just saw them. This might be them now. This might be them kicking on. I remember we played Germany in the World Cup in um, 15 and we had a mental block over them. It's one of the hardest things to to overcome because you think it's just another team, like why, what is it? And the same for knockout stuff. It does really affect you because you can't take away history. You can't eradicate it. But you've, you've got to find a way and fair play to France that have done. And they're going to obviously a massive game now against Germany and you know, at least I can dust that one off and go, right, we're going to another knockout and 
it's it's fresh for us now. We're, we're past that point. Yeah, I wonder whether that will completely change their mentality. That because the whole game, Susie, was literally all France. Four point four four xg was what the, the the figure was. One goal to show for it. I mean, how many times have we talked about being clinical in this tournament so far? It's it's just seems to be very difficult for everybody. Does it just show how? toothless they are without Marie Antoinette Cototo and how much they miss her to just for the tap-ins and uh, and the finishes yes and no I mean she's a huge player obviously um and was being so important to the the group stage just for the presence she adds as as well as you know like her actual goal scoring and of itself like she opens spaces up for other people but at the same time like France's story is a journey of like overcoming absences, isn't it? If you talk about sort of some of the big players that are missing, having fallen out of the act, you know, the Amandine Henri's and Eugenie Le Summers and then obviously Katoto getting injured. You know, it's hugely impressive really that they've looked relatively untroubled by all those absences. The fact that they're still creating so many chances getting in the box so much it was sort of inevitable that they were going to score yesterday you know whether in normal time or extra time so yes obviously she's a huge loss and the further they go the more pronounced that loss will probably be but at the same time like they've done it to this point really with so many big misses that you sort of think that's got to do a hell of a lot for the confidence of of the team, knowing that they can still create without some of the biggest names that they potentially have at their disposal. Mm, interesting. It's going to be fascinating to see how they get on uh, against Germany. Question from Tapio here. How are the Netherlands so toothless in attack? Seems like with their material, they should be banging them in even against France. Tim, w- were you surprised at how little the Dutch offered in this match? Not overly, no, for some of the reasons that Susie suggested, that Mark Parsons hasn't had a long time with this team, and there's lots of things. You can see in this tournament there are some teams that look really settled. England are one of them, Germany, one of them. And then there are some teams that are still trying to sort things out, and that's Netherlands. Netherlands have made changes, and in this game they they dropped Jill Roard and played Daniel van der Donk because Mark Parsons hasn't found a way to get them both in the team. And to be fair to him, Daniel van der Donk was injured for most of last season, so he's not been able to sort that out before the tournament. And then you can see other things. And again, Susie alluded to this, there is like a team bubbling up underneath this team with players like Pelova, Egarola, I think, will come in by the time the, the next World Cup starts and Brutz. And of course, Van Domselaar coming in in goal. So I, I think the problem for Netherlands in this tournament was they were trying to put the plane together while it was already in flight in tournament terms and and I think you'll I do think you'll see a, a different Netherlands next year so definitely with the names they have yes they should be carrying more threat but I just don't think they've got that balance and the injury to Lika Martins as well I think you know had a further impact to bear there yeah that was huge but but Karen Tim mentioned Jill Rod there not in the starting lineup and apparently because of comments that she made about Mark Persons earlier on in the week. She did an interview with DeVolts Grant and said that he gives more talks than Serena and he likes to go in-depth and then 50% drops out with us. I mean, what kind of impact does that kind of thing have on a team that they're quite clearly not 
exactly on board with their new head coach just yet? Yeah, I mean, I was watching other people talk about it as well. So sometimes things like that get out usually there's no smoke without fire, right? So um, there's obviously a different style. He brings in a different and it's hard. I'm guessing that, I don't know if it's a bit of a poison chalice because of how successful Serena was. You come in and you, you win the Euros on home soil, you get to a World Cup final and that's your cycle. They came to that cycle in terms of management and maybe the squad needed that freshen up. But it's really hard when you've had such success and then change. That's the hardest thing. Now, whether it's good, bad and different, it obviously hasn't worked in this tournament, but they are in the transition. But I can understand that, you know, keeping it simple sometimes is the best way, but this is his style. And for whatever reason, whether that's accurate or not, she didn't feature and she came on. But for me, the the Netherlands are in a transition and, you know, you've had a two tournament cycle that's been absolutely phenomenal and, and now they need to build again and go again and maybe get used to his style and his way. I actually kind of feel sorry for him a little bit because it's really hard to make that jump from a club coach to an international manager. And I don't think necessarily people are given enough time to adapt into that role. And you look at uh, Andonovsky in the US, like he's not exactly taken to it like a duck to water. It's taken him a little bit of time to find his feet in that role. And we're only really going to see him properly like tested now he's found his feet a little bit at the World Cup next year. But you sort of need to allow a little bit of a cycle before you sort of go all guns blazing on them, I think. And I think Mark Parsons, he's probably making some mistakes, but everyone is going to make a few mistakes when they go into like quite a different type of role um, and a different way of working because it is a very, very different format to your sort of working week and stuff when you're taking on an international role, you're not picking your players <laughs> to a certain extent and that kind of stuff. So like, I, I feel like, yeah, Jill Ward, there's probably no smoke without fire, as, as Karen was saying, but like at the same time, maybe they need to ease up on him a little bit and just give him a little bit of time with short in. Susie, I think on you make a good point there is that like, when you're a club coach, you get so much pitch time with players when you're an international coach, you actually grass contact time is really minimal. So even though you're in a three-week tournament, it's say if you, you play a game, your next stage of recovery, your next stage of recovery, then you've only got a two-day build-up. So actually, he might be going, this is, this is a training session for me, having a meeting with players and having a lot of information. And as you said, he might look back and go, actually, I don't need to do that. Or maybe I'm still sticking with it and they've got to get used to it. But it, as you said, it is very, very different. The grass contact time you have with a player is completely different from club to international level. And that's an adjustment for him that I'm sure he's trying, trying to get used to. That's quite an interesting point, actually. And I, and I wonder, I don't know the kind of character that uh, that Mark Parsons is. He seems like a, a pretty chilled out guy. But in these kind of circumstances, you've got to take the ego out of things, haven't you? And it's whether or not he'll be able to take the ego out of his players criticising what his style is to learn from it and that could be quite key let's move on to France's semi-final opponents Germany Susie mentioned them there 2-0 win over Austria on Thursday night goals from Lena Magul and Alex Pop popping up Poppy on the score sheet again Kaz you must be absolutely delighted your mate she's not my mate she's I remember in the World Cup um 
we had the Farrah's penalty and I squared up to him and realised it was it was Poppy and absolutely bottled it. And then any <laughs> any of all players came and pushed her and backed up and I thought, any, me and you are not the two people to take on Pop, I tell you straight. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think she's my mate, but um, yeah, she's, she's definitely a different, she's very, very competitive, put it that way. Make friends, make friends, I think. Uh, it was an inspired performance by Austria. They hit the woodwork on several occasions. And so really, when we've been waxing lyrical about Germany this entire tournament, it actually wasn't particularly comfortable for them despite that scoreline, Susie. No, not at all. And like that's testament to Austria. I think they've been unfairly labelled the surprise package of the tournament because, you know, they did reach the semi-finals of this competition uh, last time out. So they they shouldn't have been, maybe. Um, and, yeah, extraordinary unlucky with uh, with hitting the woodwork uh, a whole load of times. That dunce one in particular off the bar, uh, you were just like, come on, like somebody's got to fall their way, surely. And it was, yeah, I mean, obviously some pretty disastrous goalkeeping that undid them, which was... Sad to see from a you know an England's uh, domestic football point of view. You know Zinsberger had an incredible season for Arsenal, most clean sheets across the across the season, and yeah, real like poor decision making for both the goals really, which was disappointing. Yeah, she had a shocker, Tim, didn't she, Manuela Zinsberger? Real shame for her, but. Austria still have come out of this tournament, you know, with a bit of a halo around them. I feel because they've probably gained themselves legions of of new neutral fans yeah definitely and and i was um i I got like i guess annoyed by some of the analysis after um england v austria because i think a lot of people underestimated austria first of all i mean as a team they are better than the sum of their parts they're very very well organized just go back and look at how many goals they've conceded over the last year it's not many at all but they have also got really, really good players. Like Karina Weninger has played over 200 times for Bayern Munich. Manu Zinsberg has won the Golden Gloves Award in the WSL this season. You know, that Vicky Schneiderbeck couldn't play in this game, but she's played for Bayern Munich and Arsenal. Sarah Puntigam, I think, is one of the best number sixes around. Zadrazil, one of the best number tens around. Nicole Bieler won the Golden Boot in the Bundesliga a couple of years ago. They've got some serious players and they definitely come out of this tournament with great credit. I, I was at this game, and, and I think um, the thing is with Germany, though, that makes them really ominous is they just seem to be able to solve different problems. So when they play Spain and they don't have the ball, they solve that problem. They play a team like Austria, who tried to play them on the counter, they solve that problem as well. And that that's what I think makes Germany potentially the favourites, I think, at this point um, to win this tournament, I have to say. Sorry. No, no need to apologise, although I will just remind you that England also solved the problem of Spain's uh, possession-based football and managed to uh, turn things around there. Um, Kaz, interested to see your perspective as a former player, because even though obviously Manuela Zinsberger was at, at fault for, for the two goals, the pressure that the German front line puts defences under is, is so intense that it makes them make mistakes. Yeah, I was listening to the Liverpool assistant manager, Pep, talk about how Liverpool like press a player and uh, or they call it chase and he says the last two yards are the most important and I think Pop or Poppy I've never seen anyone press especially the last two yards as a player like she has so usually when you get up to a ball you think you've done your job but she absolutely goes up with intent to win it 
And that's something that we need to be mindful of. And Austria have their philosophy, you know, they play and they wanted to play through it. And that's absolute credit to them. They're stuck to their guns. But you do have mistakes. We saw it against Spain. They stuck to their philosophy. They also got caught out. So we, we just got to be, whoever it is, France as well, have got to be aware of that. You, you can't take it away. It's a huge part of their game. But I have to agree with Tim. They can play multiple ways. Like against Spain, they can just drop off and wait for you in the central areas and then go press you. Or, you know, if they want to press you high, they can. Their build-up is very, very different as well. They, they are the ultimate problem solvers at the moment. But the common theme, I think, throughout is, the, the teams are that have gone through have had a lot of chances, but all I think all of them are struggling with clinical edge. You know, they were only one by one goal margins. So they're all in similar situations and they just got to eradicate those mistakes, really. Yeah, and actually uh, being adaptable in a tournament is really key. Being adaptable as any team is is really key. But interesting, Susie, on Alex Pop there, because she's the first player to score in four consecutive games at a Euros and Southern Silve said, Pop said, if this is my only Euros, I'm going to do it right. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of miraculous really, isn't it? That it, this is the first one she's played at when she's got, you know, close to 120 caps. But yeah, making up for lost time, right? Like there's no better way to do it. No, absolutely. There isn't. Interesting question from David on Twitter. Is it really fair for the second teams to have two days less recovery than teams in the first quarterfinals? Uh, German players must have loved seeing the French do 120 tonight. Uh, Karen, how much does that difference in recovery time affect you? 100%. I'd be like, give them extra time, go the whole way from playing against them. But this tournament has been kind. You know, previous tournaments, you add like three-day, two-day turnover and, and it adds up. So they have got a little bit more time and what I would say is now with technology, there's better recovery strategies and with finances, teams are more equipped with staffing to help recovery, but there's no better recovery than sleep, rest, hydration and, and time. And you need that. So it is for me, it is a disadvantage if you are that team that has less recovery time. And especially given the circumstances of COVID, I think it is a massive disadvantage and that's brilliant for England in terms of recovery time, getting players fresh and fit and firing, training time. You know, like I said before, you know, someone like Mark Parsons might not be used to grass time. Well, if you have extra recovery, you can recover and still have maximum pitch time to put your game plan and start to strategize around it. So I think it is very helpful. Yeah, it certainly is. Germany, France in the semi-final, Susie. Who's coming out on top? You do know whoever you say. The rest of us are going for the opposite <laughs> team. Well, yeah, no. As uh, the Spain game was going on, I was thinking, oh, oh no, <laughs> this is uh, another one of my <laughs> predictions going awry uh, after they scored. But yeah, I'm hoping that's ended my my drought. Yeah, who do? <laughs> yeah, obviously <laughs> Germany. Um, based on what I said already, I just find it really hard to look past them. I mean. Austria played a great game against them, but they still didn't look too, too troubled going through the motions of that game. So, yeah, for me, that game is going to be Germany. I think France will sort of have a lot of their issues in terms of, you know, kind of personnel being out and stuff and Katoto not being there to finally catch up with them because you may find a few spaces against a team that is actually defensively not that, great like the Netherlands but against Germany they're far more organised Are we all saying Germany Kaz? You know what I think look again it's, Tim mentioned it as well that they've had a variance of opponents but I don't think they've come up a team that's so 
width reliant in France. They really do go down the flanks in numbers, and I don't think the Germans have faced this yet. I don't think you know the two fullbacks, Rauch and Gwyn, have had someone go right. We're going to run it, yeah. We're going to dominate you. We're going to have Karchawi. We're going to have Cascarino. We're going to have Basha. We're going to dominate down the flanks and run you ragged. And I'm interested to see how they cope with that, whether they'll go like the Spain route or they'll go 4-5-1 or bank up and we'll just protect them as and when. For me, this will be another test for them in terms of how they deal with the French wings and overloads. Yeah, I very much think Germany will win this. With Katoto, I'd say flip a coin. I honestly would. But without... Like I said, there are teams in this tournament that look settled and teams that don't. France would look like a settled team, but they've been thrown a bit of a problem with this Katoto thing because they don't really have a really proper number nine. And they brought Mallard in and, and she's done a good job, but not really the same type of striker. And again, it's a problem that France are trying to solve on the fly. And I think against Germany, you would just come unstuck. I mean, Germany aren't going to let France put up 4.4 xG and France are going to have to take those chances against a team like Germany. And we saw what happened to Spain. They had chances against Germany. They didn't take them, lost 2-0. And I do sense that this game might go in a similar direction, to be honest. Interesting. OK, so France are making it uh, to the final, obviously. Uh, that's it for part one of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Coming up in part two, we'll assess Sweden's win over Belgium and look ahead to that semi-final England versus Sweden. So as you know, this podcast is supported by Visa. The Euros is all about the continent's very best competing at the highest level, but getting there and staying there isn't always easy. This is why Visa, on top of being a proud sponsor of UEFA Women's Euro 2022, is committed to supporting female footballers on and off the pitch. Through initiatives like the Second Half, a career development programme to support female footballers, players like former Reading midfielder Brooke Chaplin were able to think about life after football and importantly, do so before it actually happened. Uh, Brooke, lovely to see you. You had a stellar career at the likes of Everton, Sunderland, most recently Reading, of course, but you had to retire pretty abruptly this year. Can you tell me what happened and exactly how that came about? So unfortunately, I had an incident this season. Uh, I was quite lucky, really. I had an injury just before Christmas and I went for a scan it was some form of stress fracture, but within the image that I had, there showed a, a small tumour in one of the bones below my knee. They thought that it was cancerous and the safest option, the one that was the best, was to have my fibula taken out to be certain that obviously the whole tumour was removed. That must have been such a shock for you. Retirement is something that every player obviously is going to face at some point. You had to face it earlier than you would have liked to. So had you actually already thought about it and, and put a plan in place? I think when I turned like 30, I started to really think like, what do I want to do? So I obviously signed up to the visa second half and I started a master's. So I had started to think about it, but more in kind of preparation for it happening at some point. But obviously that point came a lot earlier than you wanted. Uh, tell me about what's next for you. So I've taken the general manager role at Reading. So I will be moving into to the more business side of the team this year. I'm looking forward to staying in the game and really hopefully being able to improve it for the females that are coming through. 
Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much for joining me, Brooke, and best of luck with the new job as well. (laughs) Thank you. Now back to the show. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. So England's semi-final opponents will be the Swedes as a stoppage time winner from Linda Sembrandt saw them eventually beat Belgium. I mean, Susie, the Sweden attack just is not clicking still in the tournament. We've got this far. Even Jonas Eidevel and Kelly Smith on the telly both agreed that they just weren't particularly impressive. Yeah, it's great, isn't it, from an England point of view? It certainly is. (laughs) Although, you know, you kind of feel like eventually, you know, a lot of teams will grow into tournaments and eventually something's got to click somewhere and uh, we're better than to do it than in a semi-final. You've got a feel for Belgium, right? They had a fantastic game. Their goalkeeper, Nicky Everard, was brilliant. But yeah, they're just lacking any kind of cutting edge up top. I mean, they were just uh, Steena Blackstidious. I mean, you've, we watched her all season, all season for Arsenal and she's been brilliant but just it's almost looked like she's forgotten where the goal is a little bit tripping over her feet and things at times but um they they need to find <laughs> the uh the net a little bit more and make the most of their opportunities against England if they're going to get through that semi-final but the thing is is they're such a generally speaking well-organized well-managed team that you you think that they will eventually iron out those problems I don't want to state the obvious, but the aim of the game is to get the ball in the back of the net. Tim, you obviously follow Stina Blackstenius very closely as a as an Arsenal fan. What do you make of how she works in this team? Because it feels as if she doesn't get given as much space as she perhaps does or is able to find when she's playing for Arsenal. Yeah, what Stina's really good at, and one of the things I, I don't think she gets enough credit for for Arsenal or for Sweden, is the way she runs those channels really opens up space. For others, so in an Arsenal respect, that really opens up space for players like Vivian Miedema um, and Beth Mead. But I think I think I said the last time I was on this podcast that the thing is with Sweden, they don't want to play those deep block teams. They want to play teams that have the ball. They want to transition on you, to counter on you. That's where a player like Stina gets her space. And if you just think back to two Sweden games in the last few years, when they played USA... Uh, um, the Olympics in 2016, they loved that. They loved that game because they were the underdogs. They were under siege and they just bolted the door. But then you look at the Olympic final last year, they played Canada. They were the favourites. Canada were that organised deep block team and they couldn't break them down. I think Sweden are going to be a much more dangerous opponent for England because they're going to really like both tactically and psychologically. I think this is going to be a game far more suited for them than Belgium is. I completely agree with Tim. They're a transitional team. They like running in spaces. I don't think they're great at creating their own spaces. They look nervy. You know, when Sega's not available, they haven't got the link. And that's where they look a bit disconnected, really, because they don't play through the thirds as much. The, the strange one for me is uh, there was a lot of criticism I felt of Rolfo. You know, a lot of people, she's not playing well. And I was a bit like, she's played left back all season. And we talk about transitions and running spaces. I played wing. It is so different when you're playing against a low block team and you're a transitional player and you cannot find spaces. If Rolfo was playing at left back and had the spaces to run into a left wing back, you know, she would be having a different game. And I thought the the criticism was a little bit harsh on her, actually. I feel she's a lot more comfortable running from deeper areas, which is exactly what Tim's alluding to, is the better when the space is in front of them. England will want the ball. England will want to play. England will want to be big, wide, expansive, 
that will suit Sweden. They will run in those spaces, but I still think Rolfo should be back in the position where she's bossed it for Barca. Completely agree with you, Kaz, on Rolfo. And uh, Lucy Bronze was saying the exact same thing to us yesterday in a Zoom call. She was saying that I know people say that she's maybe not firing at her best at the tournament so far, but a lot of people forget that she's been playing left back. She scored and assisted in over 15 goals and across the season. And then she's saying, I, I, I know my stats. I know a lot about her, probably more than some people watching this tournament. And it's a little bit harder to adapt back into that left wing position. I think that's a yeah, real, real harsh criticism of her. But yeah, like thought it was very, very interesting that, you know, kind of Lucy really leapt to her defence on that as well and has been doing her homework on the player that she's going to go up against. I think as well there, Susie, Lucy's a player that understands she's very similar. She likes to run into spaces that other people leave. And if Lucy played right wing, she would understand that spaces are stifled. It's such a different position. And when teams up against that, if you're up against a quick player, you just back off. And then all of a sudden they've got a decision to make and they have to adapt and Rolfo hasn't. And it's Lucy understands that, Lucy's smart and it's good to see that she's saying, hold on a minute, think about game intelligence, about players and having to change and chop. And, you know, like Lucy said, she's completely aware of that. And I, I felt it was a little bit harsh. You know, she's got to keep the ball granted, Rolfo, better. But she's much better if she was playing in a, in a back five as a left wing back or a left back, in my opinion. Really interesting, although I'm not on board with all of this agreeing the entire pod. Yeah, I agree, I agree, I agree. Come on, more infighting, please. Uh, more France, channel your inner French. Uh, great quote from Belgian goalkeeper Karen Nikki Everard. She has been fantastic this, this tournament, as have so many of the goalkeepers, but she highlighted that Sweden is a team full of professionals and not everybody in her Belgian team is professional. She said, imagine if we were, I hope they're getting the next steps to make women's football in Belgium better. You kind of forget that sometimes because we're playing at such a high level, but how important is it for us to use this tournament to highlight how much further there is to go still within women's football for some teams? Yeah, um, I think Northern Ireland spoke about it as well. You know, the disparity in resources matter. Money does matter, unfortunately. Making players professional, allowing them to be the best that they can be. It's, it's impossible when you're up against professional teams that are well-resourced, fitter, stronger, sharper, technically, tactically better because they have those opportunities. So it is really important. The game is growing at a significant rate. And, you know, we hope that that support will go into other nations that might not necessarily have or have as much resource. And it is great to see because I said on here earlier, when I turned the TV on, I was nervous as a former player to like for new audiences to watch the sport. And I have to say the quality has been brilliant. And even if you look at the WSL players that are part of professional teams, how good the quality and standard and the level is. We have to get that across as many nations and across the world as possible to keep our game going. One thing they have got is Tessa Williart, the captain, went back to Belgium to play. Now, I gather a lot of that was kind of a family-based decision as much as anything, but I think she's 30. She's played for Man City. She's played for Wolfsburg. And I know she does a lot off the pitch um, as well in terms of training programmes for, for young women and things like that. So that's got to be a huge thing that the Belgian league by hook or by crook, has their best player playing at a good point in her career in that league. And I really hope that is another hook that leads them to kind of readdress the finances and, and the professionalism of the league in Belgium. 
Yeah, it's a really good point, Tim. Oh, God, now I'm on it. It's really good. I agree. <laughs> ah, <laughs> The big one. Let's look ahead to the moment everyone's talking about next week. Not the Neighbours finale. England-Sweden in the Euros semi-final. Karen, you wrote a brilliant piece this week for The Guardian about how England's win against Spain will have helped the squad. What do you think they'll have learned from that quarterfinal? Again, um, to get past a different style of team, cohesiveness, to, to go behind, to bounce back, to show resilient moments, to show there's nothing that beats when you walk in that dressing room afterwards. And that's what every retired player misses, is knowing that you've had to dig deep, you've had to come past big moments, you've had to do it together, you've relied on just more than your eleven. You've saw young managers show emotions that you've never seen before. And then all of a sudden you go, right, this group, we're strong now. We're getting there. We're building, we're building, we're building. I think that's what they learned. It was brilliant. And what I like is I felt that we were never going out and they said they weren't. And I genuinely believe that sometimes people come out in the press and go, yeah, we felt we were never going home. Not one moment did I feel stressed that we were going home. And I think that's really important because... All the players at this level are good. Everyone can run, jump, pass, you know, sprint, tackle. But the difference between the best and the rest is the mentality. And if we keep building that, we've got an absolute great, well, we have got a great chance and we've got a good opportunity now. It genuinely feels like they believe in themselves again. I spoke to Alex Greenwood yesterday and, and she said the same. She didn't believe sitting on the bench that that they were going out at all. And, and I find that incredible because I'm not entirely sure whether that necessarily... Uh, and Karen, you'll be able to correct me on this if you think I'm wrong. But in the past, I feel as if that element of doubt was there. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. But I think the last few tournaments, it's got better. The team has got to four consecutive semi-finals now, but we have to deliver it now. We have to get to a final. I remember sitting down with Megan Rapino a while back and talking about the mentality of the US team. And like that is their mentality, right? It is very much, we always believe we're going to win. We believe we are going to win. Like we could be 4-0 down in the game, but we still believe that we are able to come back and we'll win that game. And they may go on to not win a game here and there, but overwhelmingly they go into every game genuinely believing that they will win that game. And I do think it's interesting that you've got players like Lucy Bronze, like Alessia Russo, like uh, Lotta Wabamoy and like Serena Wiegmann who all came through UNC, the University of North Carolina and Anson Durant who was that first coach of the 91 US uh, World Cup winning team and really helped embed that mentality into that squad and then you've got you know years and years later Serena Wiegmann then managing the Netherlands to a World Cup final winning a Euros taking England a really like threatening looking England team to the semi-finals of a Euros she's got that mentality right like and it's a very very American thing but it shouldn't be it's not something that is exclusive to one nation that uh, it's just about how you build it and the expectations you have for what you want to do but also the facilities you should have and all that kind of stuff you've got to demand and you've got to believe you're right there's definitely um Susie an American you can tell an American player you can tell an Anson Durham player you can tell a player that's played under him and their style and their athletic build as well I'd agree with that but I, I think again what America do is they they visualise, they create an aura, but they back it up. And that's sometimes where you go, oh, this, as a player, like this, you just, 
they're so annoying. They're like, how can they get away with it? How can that be a perception of not arrogance? The reason why is they back it up and they win. So that's what we've got to get to now. We, we've created our aura. There's talk about us. We're good. We know we can do it. We've got to go that, that bit further now and, and get to a final and win it and then create that going into the World Cup, going, hey, this, this team, this Serena Vigman team, this squad, it's gone for a transition. Because the other day I was thinking, worst, worst case scenario, that we don't come home winning it, which I think we have got a great chance. Imagine a squad that could go to the World Cup next year. The young players with the experience. Now we have to start building that or other. Hold on a minute, America looking at us going, Oof, wouldn't want to play this England side, wouldn't want to face this. That then they're not fearful, they're not worried, they're visualising winning a World Cup because we can. There's absolutely no question that we we can't go and win this Euros and go and win a transition and win a World Cup, especially with the manager that we've got. And that's really interesting, actually, because you know what the narrative would be going into the World Cup, if we were to win the Euros, it would be, yeah, but they did it on home soil. So can they then do it somewhere else? It's, it's what happens, isn't it? It's uh, it's grab the negative. Susie, you, you mentioned Lucy Bronze in your chat with her earlier on, but she also spoke about how going out of the 2019 World Cup at the semi-finals at the hands of the USA really affected her and has said so many times about how much winning a trophy with England would mean to her. You can really tell that she's properly fired up for this tournament. Oh yeah, completely. And like, I think the really interesting thing for me from that chat was that it was a point of her career where she just felt like it was going to go right for her because everything else was, you know, she was playing the best football. She was playing in the best team. She was winning loads of trophies, one of the best players in the world. She was playing on her home soil then in France, like next to the stadium that she played in. And she said it just felt like it was going to go right. So then when it went so wrong, it really hit her hard. It was like, this was the moment and it's gone. And that's given her a different way of looking at at this tournament in that you can win things when things aren't going necessarily completely right for you and you can lose things when things are going 100% right for you. And that's like just changed her outlook on on tournament football, on England, on how she can win with England, sort of almost not rushing it as well. So yeah, real, real interesting conversation, I thought. You know what, as well, Susie, I think Lucy is unbelievable, like one of the best players I've ever played with, best players in the world. We had Kelly Smith for me, the best player in the world, but why Kelly didn't get the recognition she probably deserved, and Tim, you'll probably know how good she was as well. She didn't win anything internationally. And we talk about Megan Rapino, we talk about, you know, best players because they've won international. I think Lucy knows that she needs to win something as well. Not to give her the recognition, because she's got that top recognition, I'm not taking anything away, but Again, you're, when you always retire, people always go through your CV and she's won everything. But the one thing a player will always want, and I've got bronze, I've got silver, you want a gold medal for your country. And I think she knows that. And then I think she will get the credit, like even more what she deserves. And I think that's what Kelly Smith didn't get. Kelly was the best player for me, but I couldn't remember. Because we never won anything, I don't think she ever got the plaudits that she really, really deserved. And I think Lucy probably knows that as well. Unfortunately, that's what goes down in the in the history books, doesn't it? We're in in twenty years' time, when we've hung up our microphones, the new generation are, are not necessarily have going to seen Lucy Bronze play live, and and they will just look back at that history book, which is a shame. 
but hopefully not because on that history book we intend for her to have at least one European Championship gold medal. Uh, Tim, Peter Gerhardsson, the uh, the Sweden head coach, said his team's knowledge of the WSL is going to really help them against England. Only England and Northern Ireland have had more WSL players in their squads this Euros. Who do you see coming out on top in this match? So I think this will be a horrible, nervy, tense night on Tuesday night. I really do. I think Sweden are going to make this so difficult. Personally, I tip Sweden to win it at the outset. Now, I, I have moderated that a little bit as the tournament's gone on, but I think this is going to be a really, really, really tense, nervy night. But as much as Peter Gerhardsen's right that Sweden have loads of players from the WSL, I mean, that works both ways. So, for example... You're going to have Leah Williamson marking Stina Blackstinius and she plays against her every day in training. You know, Magda Eriksson, Fran Kirby, those two come up against each other every day and have done for years and years now. So there are going to be a lot of players that know each other inside out. But I'm going to go with 2-1 to England after extra time. Interesting. So many Sweden fans have made the journey over to the UK. They're certainly going to make themselves heard at Bramall Lane, that's for sure. But where do you think this game is going to be won or lost, Karen? And who's coming out on top for you? I'm going to back England, obviously. I think Tim nailed it spot on. In football, the word suffer is used quite a lot in terms of when a team's up against it. I think Sweden are very used to suffering um, and dealing with that pressure and, and coping with it. They'll have a few chances on the transition, but I think, like Tim said, we're used to that. We have knowledge of it. I can't see anyone getting past Millie Bright at the moment, who, for me, has been the best centre-back. So I think that'll be a really interesting battle, but I do think it'll be nervy, I think. But I think with home crowd, and I, I think our attacking and our depth of squad, I think we'll, we'll win it. And um, I'm also giving out player of the match at the game. And I oh, please hope that I'm giving it to an England player. I don't want to be coming home all the way back from Sheffield, not winning and not giving it to an England player. And that's nothing against the Swedes, but um, we've got to win. I almost thought there you were making a very, very early, bold prediction for who is going to be player of the match for this oh, game. I don't, I don't pick it. I don't pick it. I'm giving it out. But I'm just like, please, please, Lauren Hemp or someone like that. So, yeah. Oh, right. OK, that's it. Lauren Hemp's going to win it. Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Susie, what, what, what are you going for? Um, Tim said... England 2-1 after extra time. Karen didn't nail her colours to the mast with the scoreline, but said an England win and Lauren Hemp as player of the match. Who are you going for? Like Tim, I had had Sweden as my team to win uh, the tournament ahead of the, you know, kind of kickoff at Old Trafford. So, but, well, yeah. that bodes well for us. <laughs> yeah, fair. exactly. So. Um, um, all my starting predictions have been absolutely dire so yeah that, that's a good sign but yeah no I think it's England and I, I think um, something we talked about earlier is going to be a big factor this extra two days yes England played the extra half an hour but they've got this extra two day run into this uh, you know you've got Donna Anderson and Hannah Glass have both been out with Covid they've got to recover in that time as well a shorter turnaround time so if it does go to extra time like which team is going to cope with that better as well I, you know I think that is going to be a big part of England edging it too so yeah England for me as well Excellent triple England and a fist pump from Karen Tim listen really sad piece of news reaching the world of women's football this week and we couldn't spend this morning talking about 
the tournament without paying our respects to the wonderful Maria Petri. A real stalwart on the terraces for Arsenal, for men's, women's, academy sides. Basically, if it involved Arsenal, she was there. A true icon of the game. Yeah, hugely. Someone uh, I've known for about 30 years or so, obviously from going to men's and women's games and just one of those people that everyone knew, everyone loved. Just look at the range of people. There were tweets from on Friday, FIFA.com tweeted about it. Nearly every Arsenal player put up some kind of post or something like that. And just a real character. And, you know, just a little story about Maria. She was really gifted with languages. I think she was a French teacher before she retired. There used to be this tournament called the Next Gen, which was like the preemptor of the Youth Champions League. And she used to learn how to say something in the language of the visiting team so that when the visiting team came off near the tunnel, she'd have like a little bit of a conversation with one of the players. And, and I've heard her do this in about seven different languages. Wow. So like when we played Olympiakos, I don't know, about 10 years ago, she just had like a, a conversation in Greek with their goalkeeper. And, um, you know, just someone who just took the time for those those little touches and you know, I know Arsenal wore black armbands last night when uh, when they played against Chelsea in a pre-season friendly. And for a team to wear a black armband because of, you know, the demise of a fan, I think that tells you everything. That doesn't happen very often. Wonderful, wonderful woman and a beautiful tribute from Beth Mead as well. A fan and woman like no other, irreplaceable, a true inspiration and hero. Rest easy, it won't be the same without you. The wonderful Maria Petri, who died aged 82 this week. Well, listen, she's going to miss a, a barnstormer of a, of a match on Tuesday night, I'm sure, that's going to be nervous for, for all of us. I'd love to know what her message to the Sweden players would be. In uh, I, I met a Swedish woman, actually, in the park when I took my son to the swings the other day and she was teaching me some, some Swedish. One of the words was schnell, which is kind. So uh, hopefully we'll have to give some schnell words to the Swedes afterwards in commiseration <laughs> for them after the match. Um, but where are we all watching uh, the game, Susie? From the press box. Now I'm not positive anymore. Whoop, whoop. Tim? Uh, I'm I'm going to be in the Tony Curry stand at Bramall Lane. So, yeah, looking forward to that. And my coach back doesn't leave till 4am the next day. So I'll have a few hours in Sheffield in the early hours looking for an open bar. Right. <laughs> Let me know where you're going to be. <laughs> Kaz? You know what? I might need to know where that bar is because all the hotels are booked. So I haven't got anywhere to stay at the moment. So uh, I might be on that all night bender with you guys when we win. So, um <laughs> Yeah, go go home steamed up maybe, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be there. I don't, I don't know where I'm sitting, I don't know where I'm staying, but I'll be there in New Jersey and hopefully giving out it to an England player at the end of the game. Look at the Brom coming out there, going home steamed up. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Carry on the way home. I'll bring my Luton with you. Um, I, listen, I almost jinxed it because I, I actually booked my hotel before the quarterfinal and I was terrified. I'd completely jinxed it. Very, very excited. Uh, we have a pod Wednesday morning, by the way. So, uh, yeah, I won't be getting steamed up because I... Yeah, Karen, no, not you. Don't worry. I've checked the schedule. It's not you. <laughs> the, fear, the fear on your face then was hilarious. Let us know where you're going to be watching it. Tweet us at Guardian Sport. Susie, see you in the press box. See you in the press box. Tim, see you in the bar. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%, whatever the result. <laughs> Kaz, see you steamed up somewhere on a street in Sheffield. 
Oh, God, don't say that. But, yeah, come on, England. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. We'll be back on Wednesday when we'll discuss that semi-final between England and Sweden, if our nerves can take it. We'll look ahead to Germany, France as well. The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver and Jesse Parker-Humphreys with additional help from Silas Gray and George Cooper. Music composition was by Laura Iredale and our executive producers are Chessie Bent, Danielle Stevens, and Max Sanderson. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa.